Hello, and welcome to Rising with the Tide. This episode is part of a mini-series of episodes from our older podcast, the Lancaster University Extinction Rebellion podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 10 of the LUXR podcast. I'm Skander. With us today we have Johnny, who's co-hosting with me, and Dr. Duncan McLaren, who's a research fellow and professor in practice at the LEC in Lancaster University, who's had a career in academia after a first career in environmental organizations. Dr. Duncan McLaren, hello, how are you? I'm very well, thanks. Uh, Great to be with you, even though I'm not, of course, at the moment physically in Lancaster. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, nice to have you here. it's, uh, It's always weird for me to think about how different the podcast was in its inception and how it is today. We were planning on having people over in the uh, LA1 TV and the radio, the bail rig radio sets, you know, in person. Um, we had everything set up and then COVID hit and, and none of that was possible anymore. But it's okay, we get, we get to do this anyways. Um, so yeah, very great to have you here. Uh, today we're going to talk about a really important topic, which is the, the effects of technology on climate change, how technology could help us, how promises of technology could be broken uh, and i want to maybe start with your carbon brief guest post that you've uh, you've published um which is called a brief history of climate targets and technological promises what can you can you sum up maybe for our listeners the crux of of this article i'll, I'll do my best so there's a there's a carbon brief piece and it's a uh, a short summary of a slightly longer piece in nature climate change that uh, I wrote with uh, Nils Markerson, also at the Lancaster Environment Centre, coming out of a project that we've been doing for about three years, um, looking at the potential for um, carbon removal technology. And I started digging into the histories of different bits of carbon removal technology and found this interesting story that goes right back to the start of climate policy which is that we seem to keep having these technological promises of something that will allow us to tackle climate change in the future. In the very first iteration, it was often things like nuclear power. In the the 1980s, the International Energy Agency was forecasting a, a tenfold increase in nuclear power. Margaret Thatcher, the UK Prime Minister at the time, um, is, is credited as having grasped the problem of climate change um, as one of the first leaders to do so, but she also saw the solution as nuclear power. So what we find, found though was that we had that, then we had promises of um, energy efficiency, of fuel switching, some of these There's always a little bit of of materialization, but never very much. Then really critically in the early 2000s, people started talking big time about carbon capture and storage. The idea that we would bolt on to our fossil fuel power stations, some new technology that would strip the carbon out of the flue gas and allow us to store it away safely. Twenty years on, pretty much from from when those ideas were were first being floated, there are a handful of carbon capture and storage projects still going on around the world. Most of them aren't actually functioning in the way that people imagined. 
-hmm. Yet, despite that, there was another series of promises around the idea of bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, which has this sort of magical property of being able to uh, reverse climate change in effect, or at least the promise is that by um, burning biomass, so cut down trees and burn them in a power station. Yeah, it's, it's a bit of a, of a weird term to, to use biomass when it often just refers to trees, like you said. Yeah, it, it, it could mean all sorts of things. And I'll, I'll, I'll point out in a moment what's really happened here. So the, the imaginary of Beck's, Beck's bioenergy with CCS is that you would cut down trees, the trees would have sunk carbon from the atmosphere while they were growing. Then when you burn them, you capture that carbon with CCS technology and bury it. So, right. okay, so that's, is well, that how, sorry, is that how most carbon capture tech is supposed to work or no, conceptually? No. So no. Carbon capture tech, we, we need to probably distinguish carefully between carbon capture as something that is put on the flue gas of a fossil fuel um, burning installation. That was the first generation. That's when people talk about CCS, or carbon capture and storage, or even now often about carbon capture and utilization, CCU, they typically still mean, oh, this is on the, the tailpipe of a coal burning or a gas burning power station. Mm -hmm. But BECS, the idea of doing it on bioenergy, added this extra wrinkle. If, if you put CCS on a coal fired power station, what you do is you cut emissions. Mm -hmm. Maybe by as much as 80 90 percent um in theory if you're burning biomass across the whole life cycle you're taking carbon out of the atmosphere and burying it away it's a negative emission technology often also called carbon dioxide removal technology right, or okay. greenhouse gas removal technology these are interchangeable terms hmm. but the ccs bit only becomes negative if it's attached to, to biomass or, or bioenergy. Now, the imaginary is of these huge power stations that are therefore pumping large amounts of CO2 out of the atmosphere and, and locking it away. What we've seen in reality are a handful of um, BEX installations, primarily in the US, where the biomass is um, corn, so the crop corn that's grown, that has been fermented to make ethanol to use in, in biofuel. In that fermentation process, as much as 40 or 50% of the, the carbon in the corn comes off as CO2 naturally in the fermentation. It's therefore very right. easy to capture and compress. But the other half of it stays in the, the biofuel. So for a start, this is this is a very low capture rate. Right. When, when you sorry, when you say just just uh, for just to be very specific, when you say 50, 40 to fifty percent comes off of the corn, what do you mean during the? the you, do you mean it evaporates? Ferment, when you ferment the corn yeah. to make the biofuel, mm -hmm. so about half of the carbon that's in the corn when it, that the corn has grabbed from the atmosphere when it's growing, about half of it come 
comes off as a gas in that fermentation. As a gas. Okay. Right. Yeah. yeah. So it's easy to capture. The other half remains in the fuel and comes out the tailpipe of the, the car that burns the bio. Right, okay, yeah. Um, that's not the worst of it, though. The worst of it is that those companies that are capturing CO2 off ethanol fermentation are selling it to um, oil companies to inject into oil fields in a process called enhanced oil recovery. So by pumping, in this case, carbon dioxide back down the oil wells, what you do is you increase the yield of oil. The, my, my best estimate based on the literature of what's going on is that maybe um, that the carbon that comes back out in the form of oil is maybe about 150% of the carbon that's getting pushed down in the CO2. Right. So it's a multiplier. Some people estimate that that's up to 600%. Hmm. And one of the key problems is that if you're a oil field operator, your incentive is to produce as much oil as you possibly can for each unit of carbon dioxide you store away. Mm -hmm. Not the opposite, which is what as a climate policy you might want them to be doing which is to store as much carbon dioxide as possible for each unit of oil right. they get out right. so so in a way it's kind of furthering this this obsession with oil and, and fossil fuels yeah what, it, what, it, what it's doing or is 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 it's not functioning very well as a as a climate measure it's also locking in the way that we do things now it's saying it's fine mm -hmm. to have oil it's fine to have internal combustion engines both whether they're running on the biofuel bit of this story or they're running on the oil that's coming out of the um the enhanced oil recovery there's also sorry there's also another problem with biofuels i think which is that you're going to be using farmland to produce the biofuels mm -hmm. and so the, the carbon that you're capturing from the atmosphere could be used for farmland to make food or anything else it doesn't it's kind of <laughs> you're absolutely spot on Jonathan and that's um, I mean I, I, I didn't mention that because that's often a well understood problem but yeah it's it's important to understand that that biofuels or any biomass production method may compete with food production and perhaps later on we'll have a chance to talk about who it is that's most likely affected by that is there a, a real difference between taking car, capturing carbon, you know, in uh, in farmland, like Johnny says, and, and in cities, for example? Like, would there be a not just in terms of you know air pollution, but I mean, in terms of what how that carbon reacts? Then, not not really in in those in those terms. If you're using um, a biological process, you're growing plants of some sort. It, it doesn't really matter where you you do it but to do it at large scale you're almost certainly going to be using farmland or you're you're maybe using um uh, pasture land or something or or you're trying to convert an existing forest that's maybe an old growth forest into a productive forest that is harvested regularly 
So land use is, is, is a huge problem. And some of the estimates for, even if BECs worked, so let's, mm -hmm. let's lay aside enhanced oil recovery and things like that. Even if it worked in the way people imagined it would work, it could take the land area of twice of India, two times India, yeah. to generate enough negative emissions to sort of balance carbon budgets. Yeah, so, and we've already, got, we've already got plants growing in all of these areas, so cutting down those plants and replacing them with biofuel material is not helping in any way. Mm -hmm. So, well, unless you're replacing pipelines with. with uh, in, in, in theory, it, it does make a difference because, in theory, what you do, if, if those plants are growing anyway, they're, they tend to be on an annual, if, if it's farmland, they tend to be on an annual cycle and the carbon that has accumulated over the year then is released as the plant rots or as it's harvested or as it's eaten. Um, whereas with converting it into um, biomass to be put into a BEX system, then in theory that carbon gets captured and, and stored away. Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to defend it too strongly, but uh, I think it is important to understand that, that at least in theory that could work because mm -hmm. in theory, or, or even in practice, I suspect that we're going to need to use some of these techniques to a sustainable degree. So we need to decide where to, to draw the boundaries and it's helpful to understand the difference between just producing something as a biofuel that substitutes for um, oil or producing something that has this negative emission effect which could be a bonus for us um, could be useful to think about anyway we, we, we sort of drifted a long yeah, way from no, it's, 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 it's all right it's all right these different technologies um, what what happened though i mean and, and this is a good moment to, to bring it back is as people got concerned about the overall land use impacts the likely competition with food production the the problems that might arise with with becks um we saw a slightly different promise emerging in the policies emerging in the models people started modeling and including ideas of different types of negative emission technology. Um, and in particular, there's, well, there's, there's been one in the last few days, people that have been a big, big bit of puff about the idea of enhanced weathering and grinding up large amounts of rock, turning it into dust, spreading it over farmland. Again, there's, there is, well, a lot more than a grain of truth in the idea that this will help to capture carbon. The idea that it might be scalable to two, gig two gigatons a year, which is what um, I started talking about, um, I find a bit hard to to, to follow and, and I'm, I'm involved with the uh, mm -hmm. the research group over at Sheffield that are doing this um, their, their models are fine they say if you spread it over this amount of farmland at these rates these are the rates that most map onto what we have analyzed in our little study plots our, our few hectares scattered around the world um, 
but they don't really work through the social and the political and the cultural issues that might come with trying to get millions of farmers around the world to change their practices. Um, Well, to me, I have to say this sounds like a little bit, this sounds to me like the political has kind of co-opted in a sense the the tech and and science uh, part of society to try and find a very short-term solution to a you know very like simplistic solution of oh we'll just you know capture carbon and and store it and that's easy all right cool the technology exists great we can do it then and it allows us not to have to change anything about our ways of production or consumption or anything like that so so this this i think there's two possibly three interesting things going on here first is this idea that yeah if we can come up with these sort of technological promises they make it easy for politicians that don't want to take what seem to be hard decisions um, to either change people's lifestyles or to um, impose costs on people. So things they think will be politically unpopular, whether that be higher taxes on air ticket, mm-hmm. air travel tickets or higher taxes on, on petrol and diesel um, or sending um, people into everyone's homes to insulate them better. All these things they feel are are, are difficult to do. They're going to be unpopular. So if instead they can say, oh, yeah, we're going to solve it with this technological approach, that's clearly going to be attractive. And this this even points to something like offsetting. Um, You wrote a piece for The Conversation, right, Uh, in which you talk about how uh, exagger- how there's been an exaggeration of how much CO2 a tree can absorb. I mean, not a tree, but tree planting as an offsetting measure can absorb, right? Yeah, off- offsetting is really a, a critical problem in this in this space. Um, and I mean, offsetting is, is maybe uh, something that we shouldn't be using anyway. But in this particular area, it is this, the main mechanism in which people, in a sense, imagine that the technology will, will work, that they can offset, a t- uh, whether it's tree planting or rock dust or direct air capture, these magic um, carbon sucking machines or BECs, that all of those, if they're going to allow us to go on burning fossil fuel and living the lives that people live right now then you need some mechanism to in a sense trade between the two and this is something that we talked about with um with this uh, deterrence as well to mitigate is something we talked about with uh one of our earlier guests um andrea brock as to her opinion that uh offsetting actually blurs the line of of, kind of where where the our limit is in a sense um so that we're able to kind of disregard the limit and just say right we can go past it because we can just plant some trees after and and you know then the limit kind of gets pushed back this this is sort of the scary thing about offsets relating to negative emissions Mm -hmm. um when offsetting was in first introduced we were talking about um climate targets that were phrased in in terms of cutting emissions by a certain proportion 
whether that there was a there was a debate about whether we needed to cut emissions globally by 50% or by 80%. Um, clearly now, if you were talking, then you'd be talking about 100%. Um, but when when we could cut emission, when we could talk about cutting emissions by 50%, mm-hmm. it was quite reasonable for some people to say, well, well, maybe these this group only need to cut their emissions by 25%, and those cut by 75%. Now, if you if you were motivated by justice, you'd be talking about that those who only had to cut 25% being the poorest and those who had to cut 75% being the richest. And if you were motivated by uh, self-interest and and historical arrogance, uh, as um, particularly the US was in those days, you'd be talking about the poor making the 75% reductions and and the rich being allowed to only make a 25% reduction. Mm -hmm. They might just pay a little bit and offset for the... Uh, the privilege of someone else doing the, the hard work for them. When you get to the situation we're in today, when we're talking about net zero and effectively a 100% average reduction, the only way you can generate an offset is if you can suck carbon out of the atmosphere. You can't generate an offset by cutting your own emissions any more because you've already cut your own emissions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the only mm-hmm. offsets that mean anything in a net zero society are those powered by carbon removal. Mm-hmm. The more offsets you allow in that society, that therefore the more carbon removal you've got to do. Right. So the okay. more you allow people to go on emitting and offset against carbon removal then the more you've got to be able to do carbon removal Mm -hmm. then you start hitting this challenge of can we actually do that much how much can we do safely and sustainably Mm -hmm. what capacity do we have all of these things have problems so whether it's becks requiring land or Enhanced weathering requiring minerals dug up and ground up and transported around, mm-hmm. or direct air capture requiring energy to run the system, so more renewable energy. There's, there's constraints to how much we can do. So yeah. we need to minimize the amount of offsetting, mm-hmm. minimize what we treat as the, the jargon calls them recalcitrant emissions or residual emissions, the ones that are, that are hard to abate, hard to mitigate. Right, yeah. Yeah, that's something sure. I, I, I want to ask you actually about um, what a net zero, because th- there's this, this idea of a net zero society keeps floating around, especially from, from politicians. Um, and and the, the sort of per capita stuff that you mentioned before, I think we'll get onto that as well in, our, in, a, in a little bit. Um, but yeah, this idea of net zero is, uh, for, in the UK, for example, has been enshrined now into law, right? A lot of people kind of take this as a, as as sort of like the the winning card of the conservative party as a as their legacy you know as a, environmentally speaking it's something they're quite proud of and you know in a vacuum i guess it is something positive but what does it actually mean to have a net zero society by 2050 um in terms of real effects and is that different 
is the political view of a net zero society different from the sort of real view of what a net zero society should be? Ooh. Yeah, I mean, I think I don't want to sound like the idea of net zero is not a step in the right direction because what it's replaced is the idea of um, making a certain level of uh, emissions reductions with the idea that taking account of any carbon removal we can do, then we're making a net reduction of 100%. Mm -hmm. And in terms of what the climate requires, that's a that's a legitimate way of looking at it. The problem that I, that I see is that when you frame the target in those terms, it says nothing whatsoever about how big the plus and the minus bits are. So how much is left of residual emissions? Are we cutting emissions fifty percent and then balancing that off against so much carbon removal that it's equivalent to that 50% of emissions? Or are we cutting our emissions by 95% and building 5% capacity of carbon removal, a tenth the size of what we'd have to do to offset 50% of emissions? Um, are we doing that in this country? Or are we doing that somehow buying it from other countries? There's, there's a whole host of issues of justice, issues of practicality that are wrapped up and, and blurred away quite conveniently. Yeah, something that we talked about with uh, David Tyfield when Johnny was last on the podcast. Um, we talked about China as, a, as an actor in, in climate change studies and such. And, and it does seem like their emissions are basically our production emissions our manufacturing emissions have just kind of transferred to them and so we point to them as being you know the big bad guys in terms of of pollution but they're just responding to our need for consumption at ever lower prices um so i think that's that's spot on especially um considering you know what you said about the sort of justice aspect of it when uh, what was it uh, an american a like a average american person emits i think it was something like eight times as much as a as a bolivian person for example it's uh you know it's uh it's very very difficult to then to then say to people in sort of less economically developed countries well you need to go completely net zero while we try and and you know and do our bit as well um especially when we're when we're pushing for manufacturing in these countries what I wanted to add to the, this, it's really to the, to the story of the, the nature piece, is that not only did we get this repeated technological pro promises that underlie the idea of not doing behavioural change, not only did we get repeated technological promises which had the effect of deferring action to the future. There are always things that were going, going to be done rather than having to be things that were done right now. Mm -hmm. But the process of these promises and the, the processes of research and politics around them 
led to us redefining how we talked about the problem. So instead of talking about emissions cuts as, yeah, we need to make 80% emissions cuts by 2030 or whatever the rubric was, we moved into talking about, oh, we need to achieve um, this outcome concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere or this carbon budget because those things were things that Bex and could, could act on. Bex doesn't just cut emissions because of the way it works, because it does this taking carbon back from the atmosphere idea. And now, of course, we talk about outcome temperatures, 1.5 degrees or two degrees. Now, this will lead us into this conversation about geoengineering, because while um, negative emissions technologies, carbon removal is all about changing the carbon budget or the outcome concentration in the atmosphere, solar geoengineering is talking about having a direct impact on temperatures. So when we talk about temperatures as the, as the target for our climate policy, we open the door to a new generation of delay a new right, generation okay. of technological promises that says we will keep within 1.5, not by cutting emissions, nor by drawing back CO2, but by putting a veil in the atmosphere that reflects some of the incoming sunlight and reduces the temperature. Right. And that sounds like geoengineering to me. Um, would you mind explaining for the audience maybe what geoengineering is? Well, geoengineering is a, is a sort of catch-all phrase tends to include both the the carbon removal technologies that, that i've talked about a bit already and a suite of technologies that are designed to um, reduce global temperatures more directly in particular by um, screening out incoming solar radiation so they're, they're often called solar radiation management um, Sounds like a nice innocuous term, perhaps, yeah. but uh, um, the, the, the most um, widely considered approach learns from the effects of large volcanic eruptions. Large volcanic eruptions um, that push particulate matter very, very high up and into the stratosphere, so above about 20 mm -hmm. kilometers upwards. Um, we find that that spreads around the world. Um, it stays up there for around about two years, possibly longer, and is associated with a, a, a reduction in global temperatures. So when Mount Pinatubo went up, um, we, we saw that in the, in, in the temperature record. Um, so a lot of scientists, a lot, a substantial number anyway have, have been exploring this particularly in model land so they're in, in their earth system models of how the climate works they've been doing various different experiments with how one might put particulates into the stratosphere so mm -hmm. stratospheric aerosol injection sai is one of the terms you'll often hear um, used to refer to this there are other ideas. People are suggesting that we might be able to reflect quite a bit of sunlight by brightening the cloud layer over the oceans, marine cloud <laughs> brightening. 
marine um, cloud brightening that's nice <laughs> and, and that this could be done relatively and non-intrusively by um, sort of robot sailing ships that would spray up cloud condensation nuclei from the salt and the, the water vapor from the, the ocean surface hmm. um, and this is actually been tested right now um, as a local project or relatively local project on the Great Barrier Reef um, because the idea there, really <laughs> unsurprisingly, is that if they can protect the uh, the local area of the reef from um, the ex excessive heating, then they might protect the coral from ble bleaching. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I remember that's one of the things that, you know, that shocked me the most from reading some of the UN reports. I think it was the, the UN uh 1.5 special report or it could have been maybe the emissions gap 20 2019 uh, i remember it saying very clearly that by two degrees um we would lose almost all corals all corals would be bleached would undergo bleaching um compared to 1.5 where we lose about half um and just for context for listeners i think it was a few days ago it was confirmed that we've hit about 1.38 something like that so it's we're we're getting I, I getting there caution, yeah we, we are i just caution against um sort of absolutism in mm -hmm. this sphere it is it, it might sound like the easiest thing in the world to say exactly how much warmer we are yeah. the world is than the baseline but right the baseline is disputed the temperature yeah, measures yeah, 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 yeah. It, it's true it is um, it is quite simplistic yeah it, yeah it's it's fairly clear that on average the world is somewhere between about uh, 0.8 and and maybe as much as 1.3 degrees right, okay. pre-industrial base no no you're you're right to point that out it's um, true we should be we should be clear as possible yeah even even if we're we're not at, at that level then some of that gap is in the post as it were mm -hmm. again this i thought 15 years ago was settled science that, that there was an inertia in the system that would bring on a certain amount of additional warming um a lot of, of recent research seems to suggest that that inertia is is perhaps less than we were worried about on the other hand there also seem to be reasons to 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 worry that the the long-term sensitivity of the climate to the changing um, carbon dioxide concentrations is higher. So all I'm saying is, is yes, we should be worried. Mm -hmm. We should be very gravely right, right. worried. But, but to use absolute terms like your this. Yeah. to a particular number right, um, right. without acknowledging that there is still a huge amount of uncertainty in, in, mm -hmm. in both directions. And that's, yeah, that's no, I think that's completely fair, yeah. Uh, there is a lot of reason to worry that yeah. it's a lot worse than, yeah. than it um, is. Just to, so, to go, yeah. sorry, just to go back to geoengineering quick. Um, there was this. I, I remember this uh, fiction film, a uh, Korean film called Snowpiercer. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you might have seen it. Yeah, where um, so this is a, a total sort of uh, fiction, but. Um, in this film, for our listeners who maybe have not seen it, um, the world decides to put a, a special type of, of particle or aerosol, something, in the air. 
there we go we've got, an, <laughs> we've got a snowpiercer fan with us nice <laughs> it, it is a great film i haven't seen the netflix series that's just come out but i i don't know if i want to watch it but yeah so they, so they put this this uh, chemical in the air to to um block off kind of the the sun's heat and then to basically slow down the heating of the of the earth but it turns out that it gets a bit out of hand and instead freezes the entire earth over um my question isn't will earth freeze if we attempt geoengineering that's not what my question is but are there potential negatives to this promethean um kind of like attitude of of trying to con- play god and, and control the world like that yeah yeah i mean that, that I, I love that movie and i think it has some wonderful lessons for us about how um political hierarchies are likely to perhaps survive even the end of the world as it were um, mm-hmm. the whole of humanity on a single train with uh, um different coaches for different small classes. children being used to replace parts in the engine yeah. <laughs> tells, tells you all you need to know about the sort of world that, that that's imagined there um yeah, you're absolutely right. Geoengineering, as it's understood, does not is is not likely to result in a in a snowpiercer um, world. But it does have some um, huge uncertainties and potential downsides. Um, and to step a little back into the science, one of the one of the main reasons we um, mm-hmm. might worry about solar radiation management is to do with the physical properties of um, the the radiative forcings that are involved. So putting um, aerosols in the stratosphere gives a different pattern of forcing than putting, uh, than taking carbon dioxide out of the troposphere. Right, could you so, could you expand on, on this? Yeah, I, I, uh, I mean, I'll tell I, you what the, yeah, Johnny, uh, I'm, I'm not, not sure if Johnny understood as a scientist, but as a non-scientist, um, I've heard a little bit the, about forcing, but not Yeah, too I'm not going to go into the, the scientific detail, but when, mm-hmm. when climate scientists talk about forcings, mm-hmm. they talk about the, they're, they're talking about the way in which energy is channeled through the Earth system. Um, putting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere as we've done it's mainly down here in the troposphere the the lower atmosphere where we live um that as as people talk about it traps heat like a like a blanket Mm -hmm. um that has different effects on the way that the climate um behaves than if you stop heat coming in from above by putting uh, aerosols into the stratosphere and the main what what that means is that even if you were to even out the average global temperature so you say okay we've got a we've got a forcing from ca- carbon that's this much we're going to put an equal and opposite forcing from um, aerosols that's the same amount you wouldn't get back to the climate we had before right okay you would get a climate that was um hotter at the poles sorry yeah hotter at the poles cooler at the tropics and wetter Hmm. because those i mean i I, don't ask me to explain the mechanics of how all that happens but, but 
the the challenge of so um geoengineering scientists would say oh yeah so what we need to do is 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 actually tailor the way that we would do this we wouldn't do a hundred percent compensation we would only do a partial compensation we'd optimize this um we put the aerosols in a particular latitude or a particular altitude to try and um uh moderate the effects and maybe they could but at the moment they don't actually have a way of getting any of this stuff anywhere um, people imagine that they might redesign air aircraft to do it but there isn't an aircraft that's designed to do it right at the moment. so it's again this idea of, of there's of these these ways to buy time but yeah. still in our imagined kind of far away uh like perfect worlds where where we think of these things but we haven't actually we haven't actually even started it seems really uh, the the yeah. path to create those so so they, they also imagine that they might fire it up into the stratosphere with artillery shells from big guns <laughs> just bomb or, the air <laughs> <laughs> or that they might um get a huge balloon uh, blows up to the size of Wembley Stadium, attach it to a very long pipe, and pipe um, a, a sort of particulate slurry up the pipe. Now there was, you laugh it. Yeah. There was oh, a serious very... research program wow. called SPICE, yeah. Stratospheric Particle Injection. <laughs> and they called it SPICE as well. That's interesting. <laughs> um, which basically... Well, they wanted to, to send a, a small balloon up to about a kilometer to be able to test how they could pump something through a hose to see if they'd got a material that would um, take the pressure. Now, for various reasons, I could go on all day about them, that, that trial got cancelled. But the right. project broadly concluded that they were uncertain whether they had the, the materials available could handle the pressure of a 20 kilometer hose so again we don't actually know how we would get the thing the, the stuff there yet as scientists we have scientists telling us that oh we could optimize the effects by putting it here and here at this time of year and that time of year um, they're also telling us that they could that, that we could modulate that over time so that we slowly ramped up the the amount of mm -hmm. um, uh, temperature effect while we worked hard to reduce emissions so that they could then slowly ramp down and that it would work to take the peak off the temperature and it's it's a great idea it is actually a great idea but it is politically so naive, it's unbelievable, that the idea that everyone would coordinate to do that yeah. with imaginary technologies, and no one would want to say, oh, well, that means we can go on emitting more um, mm -hmm. carbon. We don't have to make these difficult decisions. Yeah, and it sounds a bit like a, a disconnect between the theory and, and, yeah. and the practice as such. add one thing here, and caveat this, 
this still to me seems on the unlikely side as an outcome, but some of the modeling, and particularly the early modeling that just did some fairly crude um, SAI impacts, found that one of the effects could be to suppress the um, Indian monsoon. Right. Because of this differential effect on temperature and, and rainfall. Um, now, subsequent modeling has shown certainly that that could be avoided with well planned SAI, but it hasn't necessarily shown that it would be avoided yeah. if we had a real world situation where some countries wanted some SAI, some wanted more, some wanted less, some were doing the emissions reduction, some weren't, and perhaps some were fighting over whether they should be doing. Yeah, um, that sounds much more likely. <laughs> and and if, if there was a drought in one year as a after, after the project was started, would we go on doing it? No one's actually worked through this. You, you've got these little bits of, of research that say, oh yeah, we, 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 can, we can cybernetically assess the effects and, and feedback year on year. To, and it's like, has, has, have you noticed that virus this year? <laughs> how, how well we've done in actually feeding, taking evidence about that and feeding back. And do, Yes, we'd have longer with, with SAI. It wouldn't be as compressed a process. But to actually assess what is happening as a result of one year's introduction of atmospheric aerosols would probably take three or four years, by which time you'd have three more years of whatever you'd been doing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and the one study that, that did this in a little bit of detail, they had a really neat device and they said, okay, because what we're trying to do is control the model world, we'll build a model of the model world that's a bit simpler. <laughs> so that gives us <laughs> right, okay. is a proxy for what the model world would tell us about the real world. And then with the information we get from the model world, we'll plan what we put into the um, simulation the next year. Right. So this is meta abstractions. I mean, it's... yeah, but but they ran that. And with a team of scientists who understood, not politicians or publics or whatever, this was the scientists who understood. And it took them 10 years of the model before they got control of the system. Wow. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Which is like, do, is it really, really going to last that long in the real world? Yeah, <laughs> I feel not. Yeah, um, I, I have an ambition to to take their their system and get mm -hmm. several groups to try and to get control of the model, but have people who have groups that are playing fighting politicians or general public rather than skillful scientists, right? To yeah. see, see exactly how far out of control they could <laughs> things could get. <laughs> Yeah, with trying to to control the climate in this way, I think is that people can accept the luck that they get from nature, but if there's a central control that's able to uh, change the weather, then then obviously everybody's everybody has a, a different incentive of whether they want rainfall on their farm and this and that. 
and so it's much more difficult to uh, to unite unite people around knowing that that there's a means of controlling their fate. You see what I mean? yeah, exactly. So this this leads us neatly into the the research that I've been working on now, where we're talking to different groups about their their imaginaries, their understandings, their expectations around geoengineering. Um, and we were lucky enough to, to be able to do interviews last year at the UN Environment Assembly, where there were some negotiations about the prospects for um, governing geoengineering. Um, so we were able to talk to some of the, the politicians, or well, the, the, the representatives of governments there, they weren't politicians, they were civil servants essentially. Um, and also to some of the NGOs and activists who were trying to lobby them. And I also took a trip to Nigeria to talk to people on the sort of front line of um, climate justice activism in Nigeria. And what we found was that, that there are really poles apart imaginaries of um, what is going on in this space. Um, I should have said, we also talked to modelers, some of these climate scientists. So on the one extreme, you have this sort of very idealized sense of, that, I, that I've just mapped out some of, that we can control the climate through these tailored interventions, um, that models give us good information about what the world is, is like, um, that policymakers will then respond to this knowledge in a rational and objective way that we call the idealized view of the world um, and then the, the the polar opposite we call the situated view of the world and it was clearest to us in what we were told by people from particularly african countries both these um, field work opportunities were in africa one in kenya and one in, in nigeria um, who basically saw geoengineering as the latest tool of neocolonialism. But yeah, they, they thought, what will happen? So that the Nigerians said, yeah, yeah, our government would love this. That would allow them to go on exploiting oil in the Niger Delta, selling it to the West. The politicians would go on getting corruptly rich and um, problem solved as far as they're concerned. Mm -hmm. People on the ground, would have this recognition that well this is someone else has taken control of our reign um, and, and one one of our, our interviewees said yeah if I, if I tell my grandmother about this she'd say what kind of witchcraft is this <laughs> and sort of yeah so there, so there is a real disconnect then um and like you said this leads us well into your research on, on justice i want to talk a little bit about this disconnect between the people who are affected um, very often in poor countries affected by climate change, right? And the people who, for example, like us are in, in, in richer countries and, and kind of talk about it, but don't often experience the actual effects of it. So it is a bit like, you know, we're sitting in our ivory towers talking about, oh, climate change this, climate change that. But at the end of the day, we aren't, you know, the the islanders and the cook islands whose beaches are retreating uh, you know 
dozens of meters uh, every decade and they're just losing land to uh, salination of the land and and so how do we how do you think we can connect these two so that we're able to understand and inform ourselves better and also inform our actions through this so so here i'm I'm gonna gonna use you a bit as guinea pigs this is definitely (laughs) work in progress and, and thinking in progress um but I, I, think, I think it might be helpful to conceive of the situation we're in as one of climate privilege. And that's okay. deliberately echoing the idea of white privilege. And before I go any further, um, acknowledge that there is absolutely a, a, an issue of race and mm. racism and white privilege going on as part of this. I'm not trying to separate them, but I'm trying to, or I'm hoping that people are becoming more aware of, mm-hmm. of what white privilege means. That, that, that in a situation of white privilege, we're, we're living with the unearned benefits of, of generations of exploitation. Mm-hmm. That we're in a situation where, yes, we might feel the, the police are unnecessarily brutal. We might feel that there are bad things going on in society, but we personally don't need to look over our shoulder when we walk down the street. We don't need to, um, oh, when we go around the store, we don't find the security guard following us. Those sort of things that, that are, um, and they're, they're absences in our lives that are real felt presences in, in black people's lives. Um, and I think, so the idea is, is, is with climate privilege is that I think there are those, those same absences, same lacunae in, in how we think about the climate um, and some of the same history. So, sort of hesitant to, to use the we, this sort of collective idea, but the, the we I'm talking about it is largely white, largely northern, and on a global scale, definitely wealthy and definitely powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, or we can set out terms to, to use for, for the rest yeah. of us as, as like global north, global south. I think we can just um, use these I mean, it's, it's, as explicitly not, meaning that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure it is entirely... As, as simple as how how people talk about global north and south. No, sure, sure. But I think it, it will help us to not get bogged down on, on specific usage yeah. of, of words, maybe. But, but those, with, those with climate privilege have had, yeah, the benefits of generations of, of fossil fuel use and fossil fuel exploitation, and indeed probably more exploitation of resources um, from all across the world. We have... Uh, a, a huge infrastructure of roads and buildings and electrical systems and all these things um, and we can talk about climate uh, as a, a sort of yeah measured response we, we can do this sequentially to change change our world and reduce our emissions and so on um, we, we aren't the ones who are um, having the lived experience of indeed even a survival issue 
of engaging with climate change as it as it is already happening in um, very significant parts of the global south, as as you say. Would you say that part of the issue is that the highly technological society that we live in detaches us from the natural processes around us in our environment, which we ultimately depend on. And so it, because we can buy food in the supermarkets and we don't we don't have to interact with nature directly anymore, we, we aren't really conscious of the impacts that we're having. Yeah, that, that's certainly a, a, a significant part of the story. It it's, it's a, puts us in a situation where we can we can talk about climate change intellectually. We can talk about it as oh, as I have. Do do we want to cut emissions by this percentage? Do we want to hold global temperatures to to that level? Um, are we are we doing it now, or are we doing it in ten years when this new wonder technology is available? Um, are we how much of an overshoot do we allow before we bring back the uh, the levels of carbon or the, the temperatures and those are I think I think we end up therefore seeing the world through a completely different lens it, it is a, it is a blindness to to the urgency and the justice elements of the problem um, We'd been talking to Alexander Dunlap from the University of Oslo, who we often mention on the podcast because he's he's really been quite influential um, with our discussion with him and on how we think about especially um, wind turbines and solar panels and and the kind of potential kind of threat that they pose in invisibilizing uh, the issues. And I think that's kind of a, a big part of what we're talking about here is making invisible the effects of climate change for us and the ways in which we solve the problem as well. So um, what Alexander had taught us was that uh, wind turbines, for example, have had demonstrably like negative effects on things like crops and, um, and cattle very like sort of around it. And also in terms of the companies that take the land from people uh, like indigenous land especially um and so there are very real issues as well not just with the effects of climate change but how we plan to solve climate change um so for example with wind turbines we have to be sure that the you know the metals that we get for it the the places where we put them all these things are socially responsible as well well i think what what you're emphasizing there is that technologies are not um sort of essentially good or essentially bad yeah um, and the, the the problems tend to arise because of the ways um we choose as societies to mobilize those technologies and and yeah i'll i'll, I'll name the, the 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 bogey as as capitalism in a, in a capitalist system we mobilize those technologies in ways that uh, are profit maximizing not in ways that are social benefit maximizing um, so it, yeah. and, and and we and we do so in ways that uh, essentially value uh, or, or, or choose our priorities according to money rather than choosing them according to to measures of social equality and social justice mm -hmm. so as a result in those systems um, the justice elements of dealing with climate 
get sidelined. We, we get all too often a view that, yeah, we've got to cut emissions or we've got to reduce temperatures or we've, we've got to deal with the climate problem before we worry about the justice problem. Mm-hmm. And, and the reason I want to emphasize this idea of climate privilege as a, as a blindness is that that's when you are able to think that way is when you have climate privilege. If you are in the um, other group that is struggling with the climate as a part of daily life, as a survival issue, um, and at the same time you're on the receiving end of the injustice of whether it's the pollution from the chemical, uh, the, the oil refinery, or the oil extraction in the delta, or whichever aspect of it that we see constantly in environmental justice studies that poor and black people and people of colour suffer more from, um, then the, the climate is just one dimension of the justice problem. And mm-hmm. that is the way that we need to see it. Um, rather than as as two separate things that that we can park one while we we try and deal with the other, um, and and to be fair, the, the, it's it's good to see um, Extinction Rebellion wrestling with this um, challenge because at first XR was also in that space of essentially yeah, yeah, for sure. climate is what we have to deal with now. And, and justice can wait, um, and not even recognising that the, the initial strategy of saying, well, let's overwhelm the police by all getting arrested, was not something you could suggest to someone with a black skin. Yeah, um, I think that's something that XR, personally, I've, I've seen XR do tremendous work on. I mean, over the past maybe months, even a year, uh, they've just... They've opened up so much. And I think it's in part because more XR branches have opened up in, in countries like, um, for example, Brazil has been a huge player in terms of XR. Um, XR branches have opened up in Africa and Asia all over. I think that that new perspective then kind of gets brought in. And it's not just a perspective for perspective's sake. It just becomes an integrated part of the approach, which is, I think, what's important. It's not just sort of, you know, the idea of diversity for diversity's sake, but just the actual kind of integration of that diversity and, and really yeah. understanding what those issues elsewhere are. Um, yeah. So, yeah. I've got a paper that I have um, in, the, in press, actually, it's a book chapter, talks mm-hmm. about the idea of justice as recognition and, and works with um, some of Jacques Rancière's ideas about post politics, just to say that. The, the, The real stuff of politics is how does it enable those who have no voice to not only be heard, but to reconfigure the system so that their interests and identities and ways of understanding the world become part of the new system. Mm -hmm. That I I, certainly wasn't intending to, to sort of say, XR is part of the problem, but only insofar as XR has has taken on board this sort of idea of a justice-centred approach, uh, only insofar as it is recognising the people who are unheard in the climate story, 
then it becomes part of the solution. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's pretty spot on. Um, we have a few minutes left, so I, I, I want to spend that time. We, we try to spend the last kind of bits of our interviews each time trying to talk about solutions and especially, you know, potentially hopeful solutions and positive ones um, to kind of end on a, a hopeful note. So, so what does, what does climate justice and what does maybe as well carbon, you know, carbon tech and, and, and what we talked about in the first place, what do those things look like to you in, a, in, in that idealized world? But, you know, maybe a bit more pragmatically, like in the next sort of decade, how do you hope that things plan out? Oh, yeah, you probably not got me on the most optimistic of days, but no. <laughs> uh, I, mean, I, I do think I, I do have hope that the climate movement is embracing justice more. It, I mean, maybe it's just another wave and it will recede again. Um, but I think this time um, I've seen much more response within the climate science and climate policy communities to um, the, the impacts of, of Black Lives Matter protests in particular, but also across the piece to the idea that we are not gonna engage um, in solutions without starting from justice. And I think the, the, the place that I do have some hope, um, perhaps rather less in, in the UK at the moment than elsewhere, is in the idea of, I mean, to use the jargon, the Green New Deal type mm -hmm. approach. So, I mean, you probably know more than I do about what uh, Macron is uh, suggesting for, for sort of post-COVID investment in, in environmental matters. Yeah. Um, Boris Johnson is, is offering us peanuts, so presumably we will have monkeys insulating our lofts soon, but uh, um, unfortunately uh, we, we seem to have more money for road building, so more emissions. Yeah. Than we the have HS, to, uh, was it called HS1, HS2? There's the, the, the high-speed rail, which yeah. to be frank, I would, I, I will put on put aside i mm -hmm. i mean I, I buy or i understand the arguments on both sides with 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 hs2 and mm -hmm. and i think there are there are often cases for for symbolism in um investment that wouldn't necessarily be mm -hmm. uh, a disaster on the other hand i'm sure we could spend that money far more effectively on, on yeah. getting it in other ways yeah. so i'm not saying it's the the best thing to be doing um but what is clear cut to me is that we should be spending far more on improving the um, standard of our homes and far less on building new roads. Um, I've recently moved into a new house and it's still got a gas boiler, a new house in 2020. It's, it's like that will be replaced before it's um, useful life is over. If we're going to get anywhere meeting climate targets. Yeah. Um, equally, Dominic Cummings is said to have won hundred million pounds for um, speculative investment in direct air capture technology. Mm -hmm. And they're spending about 4 million on improving carbon capture in nature by 
um, restoring peat bogs and, and improving. Yeah, peat bogs are sure, are sure so insanely on. important. So a whole, the, the, the balance is completely wrong here in, in the UK at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, we look across the Atlantic and, um, well, <laughs> in a month... We seem to be doing better. <laughs> the, 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 the complete catastrophe um, that, that is the current administration, we see the promotion of the Green New Deal and mm -hmm. um, the... the, the the embodiment of more justice-oriented focuses into the into the Democrats' climate package, mm -hmm. which, fingers crossed, we're we're going to see some sort of implementation of um, next year <laughs> and yeah. follow. -up. So you you ask for optimism. I can't say. <laughs> yeah. No, no, thank you. Before we we finish, I had a another question I I thought of, um, and this was kind of based on Johnny's question earlier. Do you think that something like the New Deal, the Green New Deal, I mean, um, or even sort of what we're planning in the UK, um, in, in, throughout Europe, in the US, etc., do you think that these fixes will really target uh, sort of what I personally, I think Johnny, I speak for Johnny as well, see as an intrinsic wrong in our disconnection from nature? Do you think that these these fixes can really fix what's at the heart of this, which is that we see ourselves as outside of nature and we've we've kind of completely gone away in the sense from our roots as as beings in an ecosystem is it for me sorry as as an organism yeah as you said yeah as an organism because for me it seems like all these fixes uh, of investments and such don't seem to really incorporate this idea this philosophical idea of humans as part of an ecosystem Hmm. I, I think I'd agree with you that they are, in that respect, not a, not the whole story. Um, mm -hmm. They, the, the, there's some, there's some interesting work being done though about, in a sense, what, what sort of things you would invest in. So even in the um, carbon removal world. Mm -hmm. um, are you investing in things that are, as we, we mentioned, sort of improving, um, restoring salt marshes, restoring um, peat bogs, um, restoring old growth forests, things things that have a a temporary but um, significant carbon removal but benefit that will mm -hmm. help while we're doing proper emissions reduction across the piece. Um, I think if we if 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 we get a Green New Deal right, and by right I, I mean the the justice focus of it right, so that we are um, providing or, or, or creating work for people who don't have work, we are creating um, comfortable living environments for those who don't have them. Um, we can only do that within the, the the sort of bounds of sustainability to do it meaningfully. So um, we, we're going to have to engage with those questions about what a good life means, because no, we can't have a, a green new deal that, that lets everyone um, drive a Tesla and uh, fly and offset their flights uh, a dozen times a year or whatever it is. 
that's that level of overall economic growth overall consumption is is not compatible with as you say uh, an understanding of of humans as part of a uh, a global ecology, or in, more importantly, of local ecologies all across the globe. Yeah, yeah. It seems to me like circular economies, for example, seem to incorporate that a bit more. I know we've done some work on that uh, in in Sweden, right? Yeah. Um, the the idea of the circular economy again has has a lot of potential, but as it stands, it has been almost entirely co opted by capitalism as usual. So we, we've seen that um, ideas of a circular economy are becoming more about companies having control of the products that uh, everyone uses um, so that they can control the supply chains and the resource chains rather than um, about people having collective control over their own lives. So yeah. I, I so again, it's yeah. a bit the side of control links to justice in a sense. Yeah, I think I think if we if 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 there's two words to sort of take away, I guess it, it would be justice and it would be power. Um, in that we certainly in, in the UK, I think in most rich Western northern societies, we have this um I mean, it's another blindness. It's a blindness about the networks and webs of power that control or that have most influence on, on the circumstances we live in. Mm. We, we believe that we have power because we have money to spend in the market. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is such a trivial and flimsy form of power um, that... Uh, and, and, we're, we're often sort of giving away even what democratic power we have in return for sustaining the economy. Yeah. That, that, that way disaster lies. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like there are also, you know, quite hopeful ideas and, and, and concepts and, and sort of pract- put things put into practice. Like um, I look back to, you know, Lancaster, our own sort of, home or at least for Johnny and I our ex home now unfortunately as we've graduated um I look back to Lancaster and I see things like single step you know the I don't know if you've been the uh, co-op in in Lancaster town um they are very very heavily focused so it's a food shop um they're very heavily focused on having local things um having things without packaging for example um having everything kind of grown from you know organic farms and such local organic farms and and it's really i don't know i've seen in them an example for example of uh sorry an example of a society that i would want to see at least in 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 principles so for example they have um a 10 percent discount for people who have been hit hard by austerity right as a sort of um, as a social justice kind of, uh, I think what what, what that illustrates to me is is that yeah some organisations are thinking holistically they are they are seeing the um, intersectionality of the problem um, and that that's great um, whether those 
can alone prefigure the political changes that will redistribute power is a, yeah. is a different question. But that, yeah, there are, I mean, I, I'm hopeful when I see um, the, the, the baby steps being made by citizens' assemblies at the moment. Mm-hmm. I think we do see there um, that when we, when we allow people to think of themselves as part of collectives, um, they tend to come up with more socially just, socially oriented solutions and recommendations than they do when we atomize them and make them make their decisions through markets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's something that I'm, I've been looking into as well. I'm quite hopeful for. I'm actually I'm hoping to get um, very soon someone on the podcast who has worked on these things. Um, so definitely stay tuned for that because I think we'll. It would be really interesting to maybe get in touch with people who sort of like random citizens who have been part of these assemblies and who, you know, maybe didn't really know much about ecology or anything before and through this have learned something uh, that we can then learn from. I think that would be really interesting. Duncan McLaren, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, Learned a lot today about yeah, we've learned a lot about uh, justice, about carbon capture tech and carbon use tech. Um, honestly, I'll definitely read up more on, on your work than I already have because I think I still have a lot of questions that we don't have time for, but you know, I'm sure I can find some answers in your work. Thank you so much for coming on the show and we'll see you around. It's been a pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.